I've had a number of individuals go through prison and a couple of them, they did some bad stuff and I couldn't help but feel, yeah, you deserve to be there. But when they came out, they, they had PTSD because of the experiences they had in prison, being traumatized, having to survive in prison. And then they end up with PTSD. With PTSD, you, you feel entirely disconnected from everything around you. You don't trust anything anymore. So it makes it very difficult for those people to actually go and seek employment or to do normal things. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Su, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. So in this episode of Revolving Door Syndrome, I'm here to welcome Dr. Davin Tan. He's a father, husband, and he's also a forensic psychiatrist and a child and adolescent psychiatrist as well. Um, and also he runs a podcast called Huddle Wisdom, where he shares some of his insights into parenting and child and adolescent uh, mental health. I think it's really important to bring someone like Davin on the podcast because he's got a lot of experience working with people in the mental health system, both in a forensic unit. So places where you know people who have been charged with criminal offences who are waiting to stand trial or are being assessed to see if they are actually mentally fit to stand trial and also the people who have been mentally unwell while doing these um, criminal offences. Um, we're also going to talk about child and adolescent mental health because as we know anxiety in young people particularly has seen a really drastic increase over the last five years and this trend hasn't really actually gotten any worse with COVID, it's actually much the same. I think it's really important important that we look at how we do parenting, we look at how we do education because the health of young people is really important because actually young people are our future. So welcome to the podcast, Devin. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me, Nina. It's really exciting yeah. to be here, actually. What a privilege. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I think it's um, great that we reconnected. I met Devin actually while I was a medical student in the psychiatry placement back in 2016. Uh, so I was actually placed at the Mason Clinic, which is based in Point Chevalier. Now, the Mason Clinic is a forensic psychiatry unit, which I'm sure you'll probably have a better way of describing what the service is. But I think that it was actually a really formative experience for me as a medical student. It was really eye-opening. I remember in the lead up to the placement, I actually I was actually thinking to myself, oh, do I even want to go to the Mason Clinic? It's It sounds really dangerous because it's basically a prison, right? For people who are mentally unwell, like, will I be safe there as like a small Asian female? And I sucked it up and I actually had a really good time. And it sounds really morbid, but I had a really good time because it was my opportunity to have mm. a view into the justice system as well as the mental health system and see that actually those two are really linked. Yes. It's funny because I remember you being this rising star <laughs> as a student 
the reason why I say that is because I remember we had this this family meeting with a, a, a new patient that had just come in and we were doing a round of introductions and I botched mine up with the patient and I think he even swore at me at one point. <laughs> and then you stood up and you gave your full fucker papa and I think I even said, my friend here puts me to, <laughs> puts me to shame. I think I can learn a lot from her. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I think that patient really appreciated it because anyway, th I, I remember that and I remember you because of that. I also remember that you gave me this list of books <laughs> to read, which I have now read. One of them was Atul, Atul Gawande's, I think, Being Mortal. And you speak of formative experiences. And I think reading that book was was a formative experience for me in my own thinking about life and death and what we do with our patients and how important interactions and relationships are. So yeah, I, I have you to thank as well for that, Nina. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually have no recollection of giving you a book list of books and I also haven't read that book. <laughs> I was meant to read that book, but, but back to <laughs> I read it for you, so <laughs> thank you. You, don't thank worry you. about it. It's but it's actually interesting you bring up the whole whakapapa pepeha thing because that's actually where I learned how to do a whaka, do a pepeha. I learned that at the Mason Clinic and I thought that actually <laughs> some of the work that they were doing in the Mason Clinic oh. was really incredible. As a medical student when I was there, I um, tagged along to a lot of the activities that the that the clients or the inpatients were doing. So there were like art activities, there was things about social connection with, like you say, your own whakapapa. Mm. I played volleyball um, with the people and I learned a lot just by being there and being with these people and hearing their stories because the recurring thing that I found when being with these people is like hearing their stories that actually a lot of these people had a lot of adversity in their life a lot of them came from really impoverished backgrounds and you know this might sound like I was really naive but at the time yes. I just thought Oh, there! I didn't realize that there would be such a lack of you know, people of middle class, upper class backgrounds. And I know it sounds like I was really naive, but it's just that when it's in your face like that, it's it becomes mm. so obvious. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many of our patients there who are so dislo dislocated from their communities, from themselves. And you talked about this this misconception of safety and whether it would be a safe place to work and I, the clinical director there at the time, Jeremy Skipworth, who's an amazing psychiatrist, he told me once that what we do here is about relational security, much more so than just the physical security of the place. Because clearly there's a lot of people in there who've done some not so great stuff and they're in trouble with the law. It felt to me, I don't know about you, but to me, it was probably the safest place I've worked. I think probably because of this philosophy of relational security, which is the, the staff there with the client, with the patient face-to-face, -face, getting real, just getting their hands dirty, just journeying with them. And it, yeah, that, <clears throat> that was a real change point for me, I think, in my own thinking about how we treat patients. It's, it's not just about diagnosis, assessment, treatment. It's actually about journeying with people as well and just establishing really solid, authentic relationships and reconnecting with people, connecting with them so that they have an opportunity to then connect with themselves. <clears throat> I thought that was a really powerful experience just working there. And I, I wonder if it was a similar thing for you as well when you were there. 
Yeah, I think it was really eye-opening. I just want to, I, w I would like you to just explain a little bit more about what forensic psychiatry is, because I think there's a lot of people who don't really understand. Like forensic people think, oh, okay. isn't that just about investigating crime? And <laughs> but what is forensic psychiatry? And you know, what was the purpose of a place <laughs> yeah. like Mason Clinic? CSI. So it's looking after people with mental health problems who have somehow gotten into trouble with the law because of their mental health problems, if that makes sense. That's the simplest way I can explain it. And I think in a nutshell, that's what it is. We intersect with the law because we do have a lot of people who get so unwell that they're just not thinking straight or rationally. And they do things that they might regret later because they weren't in their right mind. And forensic psychiatrists is our job to try and get people back to their usual functioning, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, Hope yeah, that yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> And I guess like the general public probably don't really understand mm. like, what the purpose is. What do you say to people? Who, oh, that's just like an easy way to get out of you know, a sentence or whatever. Or, you know, going to Mason Clinic is just the uh, easy way of getting out yes. of prison. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very understandable and uh, yeah, very common question that, that uh, I get a lot as well. I think the thing to understand is I assume that people are thinking about the insanity defense or people who try to get out of trouble by pleading insanity. It's actually very rare for people to plead insanity. And the thing is, <clears throat> it's actually worse. <laughs> it's worse. If you do get acquitted uh, on the grounds of insanity, you could spend the rest of your life in hospital in quite restrictive conditions. It's definitely not a cop-out. And if we're talking about autonomy and this misconception that people who plead insanity get, get out scot-free, they go to a cushy hospital like Mason, it's not cushy. There's so many things you have to do. There's so many restrictions for good reason, of course, but yeah, it's not an easy ride. Definitely not an easy ride. <laughs> so it's not the easy route out. <laughs> <laughs> And what about... It's not. <laughs> it is not. No. Uh, and what about people who are, say, not mentally fit to stand trial? Ah, yes. So I think that's probably a much more common defense because I understand that this is a podcast for kind of lay people who are not familiar with the <clears throat> ins and outs of our work. But I, I would say it's a more common defense than the insanity one. And the, the job is to get people fit enough to return to court. So even though someone might not be fit to stand trial, it's, it doesn't mean they get out scot-free either. There's still a responsibility to get well enough so that you can be fit to stand trial. Some people may never be fit to stand trial. For instance, if they have a severe intellectual disability and they might have gotten into trouble with the law because of something daft that they've done, they may never be fit to stand trial. But again, for those people who are indefinitely unfit to stand trial, if I can put it in those terms, it's not an easy ride either. Did you find that there were lots of people who were trying to say that they were like not fit to stand trial? Yes, I can say that. Yes, yeah. yes, but they were fit. They were like a robust, <laughs> there was like a robust and system to show that actually mm. they were fit. So you're not, they're not, you're not seeing people like filter out and abuse the system. Yes. And you need two people to say that someone's not yeah. fit to stand trial before. So they have some hurdles to clear. It's not just someone saying, oh, I'm not fit to stand trial and 
one person and they agree with you and that's it. No, you, there's a bit of a process. And usually the process does weed people yeah. out, if that makes sense, if I can use that word, weed out. So, <laughs> so obviously this is part of your job, which is upholding the law almost as a forensic psychiatrist. Um, and I guess the other part of it is the therapeutic side, like you were saying, of trying to get these people well again. And um, I was wondering if you could share some of your insights. Why is it so hard to get people better in this sort of context um, and how you did it? Because I, I don't wanna, do want to briefly talk about this and hopefully the most anonymous way possible is that when I spent that time in the Mason Clinic, I was really taken aback at some of the stories mm. that I heard. Um, and I remember one in particular who was a relatively youngish man, maybe in his 30s. Um, he shared his story with me. And it's just, it is fascinating to hear people's stories of psychosis because um, you can understand how when people become psychotic, one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, and it snowballs in this paranoia until they just do something mm. quite bad, right? And I, and when I was listening to his story, I remember how he you know, he wasn't doing so well before. He, I think he assaulted somebody and then got put in jail because he assaulted somebody. And because of, and, and this isn't to say it was a good thing or a bad thing that he did there. It was clearly not something that we allow in societies to yeah. assault someone. But, but he went to prison and he was in prison, basically. It's a really difficult place to be and mm. to survive. You need to protect yourself, right? And in the prison that he was at, to protect himself, he mm. ended up joining a gang for protection. And then he ended up joining the gang as mm. a new recruit when he left prison. He ended up getting involved in drugs, yeah. um, ended up taking drugs himself, and then did some bad things after that. Yes. So you can just see how that can happen. And I, yeah. I feel like the general public don't understand that this is what's happening in our prisons. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's so true. I think it, and it's incredibly sad because one of my frustrations is that you hear people talk about being tough on crime. Let's build more prisons. Let's extend sentencing. Let's make it more severe. Let's teach these people a lesson so they won't do it again. But the, the fact is that there's all these other determinants for crime that you've just highlighted, this sense of needing to survive, needing to belong, being disconnected, not having the the skills or the means to to be able to move upwards in society, so to speak. There's so many other determinants that I think we we miss if we just try and use a sledgehammer. And it, obviously, that's not the answer. And like this young man that that you connected with, I think it's not an uncommon situation. And it's interesting. Your your podcast is called the Revolving Door Syndrome. And we do have this revolving door syndrome, unfortunately, when we put people through the prison system. I also see young people who move through youth justice, and I'm by no means an expert, but sometimes I get, I, and I'm pretty sure there's some evidence to suggest that this is true, that these detention centers and prisons, they, they are a breeding ground for making criminals. No surprise, you know, you, you have a dislocated young individual who's misunderstood, not given a break, they're poor, they're dislocated from school, education, employment, family. You put them in prison, what do you think is going to happen? They're, of course, they're, gonna, they're going to connect with people who want to connect with them in inverted commas, even if that connection has some nefarious intentions behind, behind it. Because at the end of the day, yeah. we're, all, we're all social creatures yeah. at the end yeah, of the day. Yeah, I think so, yes, yes. Mm -hmm.
talking about youth crime, people wanting to put 17-year-olds back in the justice sector. Like, what do you think about that? I can understand why some people want to get rid of the problem in that way, out of sight, out of mind. But actually, you're creating more problems because what's the best way of making someone commit more crimes? Let's get them more pissed off at the system. Let's put them in jail. Let's take away their autonomy. Oh, by the way, let's also expose them to other people who are affiliated with gangs. Oh, they might join a gang. Oh, that's fine. At least we've locked them up. But you don't lock them up forever. They do get released eventually. And then it's no surprise when they do get discharged or released, they come back because they've done something against the law because they now have a new family where railing against the law is acceptable. It's part of the value system now. I guess there's the whole, with crime thing, there's a carrot and the stick. You want to give people the carrot to be like, hey, if you do good things, you will be rewarded. And I think, to be honest, for people who haven't really had a good head start, there's not really much of a carrot in terms of employment and getting good jobs. So there's part of that is not enough carrot for people to not do crime because the opportunities aren't there. And then we talk about the stick. I think a lot of people don't see the consequences. I mean, if you do have nothing to lose, then consequences are meaningless. But I see the argument of why we need prisons in terms of do I agree with that? Well, I think personally, yeah. I think that there does need to be a place to hold you know, some of these people. You know, when we talk about things like assaulting other people, or murder, things like that, there needs to be somewhere yes. to keep the keep society safe, really. And there does need to be some form of consequence. The question yeah. that I have is, like you say, a lot of these yes. people, no matter what you end up with, even if people who have a life sentence, so they, as they say, will be released at some point, I guess my question is, do we still need prisons in the current way that they are because I feel like it's try as we might it's still just a punishment model like I feel that at least when we were at Mason Clinic I felt yeah. that there were lots of programs like constantly and we had a captive audience they couldn't go anywhere to do things like play sports they had to do things like arts and crafts <laughs> and learn about their yeah. whakapapa and go to Narcotics Anonymous and things like that I just have real questions mm. about the prison system because we're spending $190,000 per person per year this is talking about regular prison not Mason Clinic prison and uh, the outcomes are still pretty wow. terrible I just don't know how yeah. we can expect people to be better on the other side when I hear reports that people are spending 23 hours a day locked in their cells because they're not staffed enough to make it safe. Yes. I always feel very nervous when, this is going back to when I was at Mason Clinic, when I would discharge people back into the community. They'd be fine to be discharged, but I'd feel very nervous. And the reason why I felt nervous was because they wouldn't have access to the same sorts of care and support that they had at the Mason Clinic, which is, as you described, access to programs, connection through, through sport or something like sport where you know you, people just get together and hang out and connect with one another. I, I felt that we were just discharging them back to an environment that produced the behavior that put them at the Mason Clinic in the first place. When there was a recent, I can't remember where it was published, but it might have been the Herald. One of the MPs was talking about opening up a couple more youth detention centers. And I got a little bit pissed off with that because I thought your money would be better spent doing stuff in the community to support people in the way that that we've just described. Because there is very limited access to those sorts of supports. And yeah, I'd like to see more of that because it feels very difficult 
the sense of, yes, okay, you're well enough to be discharged, but if I discharge you back into the community where there's almost none of the resources that you've got access to here, that just feels very uncomfortable. You're kind of like but, setting people like off a cliff, it, you know? right? And, uh, and that's kind of like healthcare as well. You know, when you're in the hospital for a physical health problem, you have so much access to yes. you know, monitoring, investigations, blah, 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 blah. But then you just, like, oh, do I send the patient out? Do I keep them from it? A lot of people feel like they've been sent off a cliff, like when you send them home. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's yeah, and then I, I was I read right. this really interesting, language. I think it came out yesterday or something from the Radio NZ, and it was talking about the difficulties that prisoners face on, this is just regular prisoners, not from Mason Clinic, but regular prisoners, what they face when they're back into the community is that a lot of them, because they don't have access to the internet, they, they didn't have any opportunities to get their finances in order when they went to prison. A lot of these people weren't in regular employment, a lot of these people were in debt, a surprise being in financial difficulty just people to do crime to pay for these debts so a lot of these people rack up huge amounts of debt that goes unpaid yes. unsettled and then they go to prison and then and they're in even more debt and some of them don't even have bank accounts so well, there's no wonder yeah. why we have a 70 yeah. percent recidivism rate wow that's high <laughs> that and then you high. just go think oh what are we spending <laughs> but no yeah. surprise what are we spending $190,000 a year for if they're all just going to mm come back in within two years that's right it's the return on investment is what like negative numbers i imagine that's a crazy amount of money to spend for no return yeah. i think i'd have a lot more trust actually it's even worse than no yeah. return i think i'd have a lot more trust in the justice system if i could see that actually there were more of these programs to that were actively trying to get people more skills more support the rates of mental health problems in prison population it's really high I've had a number of individuals go through prison and a couple of them, they did some bad stuff and I couldn't help but feel, yeah, you deserve to be there. But when they came out, they, they had PTSD because of the experiences they had in prison, being traumatized, having to survive in prison. And then they end up with PTSD. With PTSD, you, you feel entirely disconnected from everything around you. You don't trust anything anymore. And so it makes it very difficult for those people to actually go and seek employment or to do normal things, to go out and actually engage with other people. And so they fall back on what they know, which is doing not so great stuff. And then some of them, unfortunately, paradoxically, they do stuff that put them back into prison because it feels safer in inverted commas. I want to ask you a little bit about your experience in youth justice because you know what a lot of people talk about or at least what the mm. media talks about what a lot of the politicians are talking about is ram raiding have you had any experiences <laughs> yeah. with youth who've been doing this stuff and now there are some sort of trends because I think people think it's all related to the gangs I don't know if it's all related to gangs I question whether it's just a lot of youths who have nothing else yeah. to do and so they think it's really fun and really great for their TikTok. Yes, I, I think you're right. Ram raids are not that uncommon. It's common enough in my world. I do recall a couple of young people who I saw in my youth justice days. This is, gosh, jeez, 10 years ago. And yeah, ram raids have always been a thing. But what they always say is, yeah, what else is there to do on a Friday night? You've got dislocated youth. They disconnected from their parents family. They've got no pro-social activity. 
they're not at school or if they're at school they're wagging because school sucks and it's boring and the teachers have had a guts full by the way teachers are awesome and they you know they they don't have the commensurate resources to keep up with the demands being placed on them but anyway <clears throat> so you get these these young people and they probably also don't have the skills to regulate the emotions very well but they find like-minded young people to hang out with they find their community and you're right i think sometimes i i don't want to make a complicated situation simple but sometimes it is it's gary and joseph we've got nothing to do what what do we do on a friday night we can't drink because we don't want to so what else is there to do oh let's do a ram raid yes let's do that because it's fun and it is fun Ram raids are fun. And so, and then, but, but then you work backwards and you think, okay, so it's not, yes, they have responsibility. And I wouldn't say that they should not be excused for their behavior. I think that all these other determinants and factors that the conditions were right for these young people, we put them in that situation. I think, why were they so lost? Where were the people to pick them up mm. and you're dislocated from school. Yes, they, they swore the teacher. Uh, maybe they made threats. Maybe they did some standover tactics. And then you expel them. You expel them. You suspend them. To what? And no one picks them up. Yeah, I mean, uh, on a previous episode, <laughs> yeah, on a previous episode, I spoke with uh, a lady called Cherie, and she was a teacher at an alternative education school. And you know, they pick up these, they do pick up these kids. They end up picking up these kids who've been expelled or asked to leave mm. for whatever reason. And yeah, they really poorly underfunded mm. their schools. But sometimes these schools are like <laughs> the last remaining defence before these kids end up going and doing these bad things. And I think it's important to yeah. one not allow these things we can't accept that these things are happening you know the ram raiding the youth crime we can't accept that so what do you think yeah, we need absolutely. to do to actually prevent ram raiding or prevent young people from joining gangs and whatnot yeah i think there so the first, first thing i think is to make sure we have some kind of system or safety net that picks up young people who are dislocated or disconnected and what I Pick mean them is, up before they've even done know, the they're, crime? They're kind of picking them up and then running with them for a long period of time. What I've, what I've found is that there's not enough money or resource to keep running with, with youth for a long period of time. It's usually short pieces of work. So, so you might identify a young person who's vulnerable, dislocated, disconnected. Okay, there's this package of care we can provide to them. But for how long? It's usually not very long and then surprise once the money runs out they get pushed out into the ether and they get lost to follow up they end up in youth gangs or they find their tribe their community as you talk oh, and wouldn't it be crazy so, if yeah. we just use mm. like a small fraction of that money that goes into prisons to actually invest in young people like we could just make so much yes. of a difference you know, like mentorship programs like yes. i think um, a lot of young people really yes. lack good role models yes. in mentorship and i have this feeling that we have such a lack of social cohesion everyone i'm talking about both low-income mm. and middle-income families 
families are working so hard just to get by that people just don't have a lot of spare time to do things mm. that were actually really important in the community. Think of like parents who had spare time to do yes. things like coach a football team or, or coach a rugby team or whatever, like all those key roles. And pe- nowadays, I think people are feeling more and more stressed financially and don't have time to do that. But there's actually a lot of good that comes out of this unpaid labor mm. that people were doing. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I'm aware that there's a lot of politics that goes into redistributing resources and funds and all that sort of stuff. But I, I think you're right. I think I do think we need to spend, we need to move some some dosh from the more pointy end of the the stick and shift it towards getting more carrots. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And I want to ask you in terms of forensic psychiatry, the people who've done bad things in the context of Mm. significant mental health illness. How do you think we can tackle that? What kind of insights have you got from your previous experience to try and prevent that happening in the future for other people? What can we do? Oh, I just want to make sure I've heard you you with the right ears. So you're asking about what I think we ought to be doing to prevent sort of mental illnesses that then lead to crime? Yep. Ah, okay. Yes. (laughs) I, I would say that we can't fix what we can't see. And we can't see what we don't know. This is my opinion, by the way, which people can take or leave. But I think that a lot of untoward behavior or unsavory behavior that leads to criminal charges happens under the radar. You don't know something's happened until it's happened. Like, why not? Like, why weren't we aware of what's going on for so-and-so? How did we let it get to this point? And then you track the history and... A lot of the time, it's because they lost the follow-up, they haven't had their treatment, they've disengaged. Well, it's interesting, right? There's, there's, some, there's some talk uh, about whether yeah, um, community treatment orders or the Mental Health Act is still valid today, right? Like some people are challenging. From a human rights point of view, is it still okay? You know, if the Mental Health Act, this is my very surface-level knowledge mm-hmm. of it, which is that if somebody is really um, mentally unwell, we think that they're a risk to themselves or others that we can basically start the Mental Health Act mm. and say that they have to remain in the hospital and they, I don't know, I think they can also, we can also say they have to take certain psychiatric medicines. I think that's my understanding. And then the community treatment order, you can also force people to take yeah. um, psychiatric medicines in the community as well. Like how do we balance mm. autonomy versus yes, yes. patient and society safety? Yeah, I think that the Mental Health Act and compulsion has its place, but I think our job is to always try and return autonomy to to people, always, which is going to make psychiatrists uncomfortable because I'd say most psychiatrists, most of my colleagues want to do the right thing by people and society and they want to keep people safe. But I think, think, yeah, I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of why the Mental Health Act is there and it's to to support people in their treatment who 
might not have the insight to to engage in treatment. But once they're well enough, and mind you, this means that we have to keep assessing and checking that they're actually compass mentors and able to make decisions for themselves. Because a lot of the time we, we don't actually think about that. We just go with the flow and just, oh, they're under the mental health act. Let's just, we just keep giving them meds. But we don't think about their autonomy or their liberty. And a lot of people do feel quite disgruntled and angry. And-, and I think one of the issues is that you put someone on a community treatment order or whatever and force them to be taking these psychiatric medicines, which arguably is good for them. And maybe the decision is that they are okay now and will take them off. But then I feel like Again, that's almost like sending someone off a cliff. Mm. They then no longer necessarily have that yes, regular yes. follow-up and then are more likely to end up to actually not take those medicines because I guess one of the traps, especially for people who have psychotic yeah. illnesses like schizophrenia, is that they take the medicines, they feel good, maybe not necessarily good, like you know, people without schizophrenia, but you know, in a place where they're no longer paranoid, mm. no longer hearing voices or whatever. But then there's that trap of, oh, well, I'm better now. I don't need to take my medicines. And I I guess that's where I'm kind of like, oh, well, is it important to have a community treatment order or not? Because these people, when they're good, when they're taking their medicines, Mm. they're in a good place. They should have autonomy. But then they choose not to take their medicines. It's, It's tricky. Yes, it is really tricky. There have been a couple of cases that I've been involved in where someone's risk was so high. So I won't go into all the details because there might be some identifying factors, but I'll try and... So when they're well, they're really, really well. But when they start to get a little bit unwell, their risk just skyrockets. Just And there was a couple of times, I've had two cases like that, where I've said that, yeah, okay, so they're well enough, they're thinking straight, but I do think they should remain <laughs> under the Mental Health Act because when they get unwell, it's not good for anyone. So it's probably best that they stay under the mental health act. But it's always going to be the court's decision whether to extend it or not. But it's really tricky because on the one hand, I don't want to be an agent of oppression. But on the other hand, there's also this responsibility that us psychiatrists have to try and make sure that we're doing the right thing and not, not ignoring people's potential for doing risky stuff. But yeah, it's really tricky. It's really yeah, tricky. Yeah, it sounds like a real sort of gray area, I guess, where you you can almost feel like you're never doing the right thing. Mm. And that's probably the same with the justice system as well. There's all these mm. people that you want to help them mm. stay out of prison and reintegrate, but then you'll have people the other week in the news about the guy who, there was a shooting in Auckland CBD, and he was a person who, I think the history was mm. that he'd assaulted his partner and he was on home detention and then somehow was, and, and he had an ankle bracelet and mm. was allowed to continue working. And he then went and obtained a right. shotgun and then went to his workplace and killed two other people. So it's just, it's real tricky, isn't it? Because um, mm. don't want to let something like that happen in the sense, in the case yes. of people with mental health issues. You also want to obtain, let people to have some autonomy. And it just, I think there's no real right answer. And it's so hard because of how subjective things are really. Like, obviously, we all try to be as objective as we can. It, it takes some humility and willingness to be, yeah, to accept that, yeah, you know, you're right. Sometimes we get things wrong and I definitely get things wrong too. I also wonder maybe what's best bang for our buck. Maybe it's about doing the best that we can, which is making sure that we have the resources and the spending in the right places to to ensure that we catch vulnerable kids and travel with them 
for long periods of time so that we can help them to establish pro-social connections and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Before it gets to the nasty sort of ram-ready, shooty stuff that we were just talking about. The other thing I want to talk to you about is youth mental health. So I feel like within the field mm. of psychiatry and, and medicine, you know, there's a big part of it, which is your psychosis or major depressive disorder, people who are really unwell in that sort of way, mm. which is quite different from a lot of the other mental health problems. So I feel like there's this growing, I guess you'd call it like a malaise, you know, like a growing sensation of just feeling depressed mm. or anxious, maybe not necessarily to the level that's yeah. required in patient mental health you know, assessment or anything like that. But you know, I think there is a growing mm. sense of people, you know, describing feelings of anxiety or depression. And I think we see that most in young people. You know, I saw yeah. I saw a graph showing levels of diagnosis of anxiety for young men and young women. And I saw that over the last five years. So even through COVID, it was the same trend. Last five years, a doubling of um, rates from 12% in 2018 to 20 26% mm. of young women aged 15 to 24 um, have developed um, anxiety. And I think this is just crazy mm. that we're allowing this to happen. So wh why do you think that, as your experience as a um, you know, child and mm. adolescent psychiatrist, what do you think is the cause of this rising you know, anxiety, depression in young people? I, I only have guesses, but I think there's a few observations and a number of my colleagues might also say the same thing, but we, we seem to have an erosion of connection between young people and parents. I think maybe there is some increase in the value of being more independent than you're ready for. And I think sometimes that, that means we, sometimes kids start to lose their attachments to, to parents, which are supposed to be their stable, secure, you know, anchors in life. And then what ends up happening is you have lots of young people who gravitate to one another and it's like the blind leading the blind. And I also think that we have this also erosion of resilience for a number of reasons. I think there's also some cultural factors. You know, we live in a very self-centered, me, me, me sort of culture. Everything now, you know, like Amazon, like what is that thing that you can get like Amazon, Amazon Prime? Prime yeah. Is it Amazon Prime? I don't know what it is. You can get it now, right? You can... <laughs> you you click on the button and you you get the thing now. It's just um, the in instant gratification. Instant gratification, which applies to parents as well. You know, we we always follow the path of least resistance, and I'm guilty of this too. You know, when our kids are acting out, go and watch Peppa Pig or go and watch something that's probably not good for you to to watch. But I'm so tired. You know, I've come home from work. Last thing I want to do is to deal with you. So here's a tablet. Go for your life. I'm probably not being fair. I'm being a bit facetious, but, but I, I, don't, I, think, I think there's so I don't think many things facetious. in I think our society. A, I think it's a genuine that, concern. You know, it's a genuine concern that I have that um, we are having mm. too much screen time. I'm having too much screen time, to be honest. You know, I'm I'm probably spending too much time on social media. <laughs> we are yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I am worried because I feel like we're in this stage where we're more electronically connected than ever, but we're really, you know, socially disconnected. I'm yeah. worried about young people. I'm worried about 
yes. young boys, actually. You know, like I feel like there's a lot of lack of good mentorship mm. and role models for young boys. And so I guess maybe is that why yes. we're seeing young boys ending mm. up um, ram raiding? Uh, I mean, that's an assumption that I'm making that most Ram Raiders are young boys, mm. but I feel like that's how it's been reported. You know, so where where are the good role models? Because I, I am worried yep. that we're hitting a, a not so good situation. Yes. And, you know, there's this discussion that I have with my partner all the time because, you know, I'm I'm probably a little bit more of a classic feminist. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's, he's raised some, like, really mm. good points. I mean, he's a feminist as well. But, you know, it raised some good points about our young boys. And if we don't... Yeah reach out to the young boys and make sure that they're yes. okay, that's going to affect our young girls as well one day as well. So, you know, if these boys are, all they see is Andrew Tate Absolutely. You know, and that's all they have. Um, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Yes. <laughs> then yep. what are we going to do? You know, we need to give them alternative yep. role models because, you know, so studies yeah. show that women are, you know, getting better education than men. Women, uh, there are a lot of households where women earn more than men mm. and that's great. Uh, but you know what Connor, my partner and I talk about all the time is that, you know, when, mm. when, when women started working, men should have started staying at home. Uh, cause it's hard, right. For mm. the whole parenting thing, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. when, when I was growing up, my yes. parents kind Absolutely. of like took turns, like, you know, we had grandparents, you know, my parents kind of mostly were part-time, like both each of them part-time, yes. uh, in my sort of like early preteen years. Um, and so they yes. were around a lot and, uh, um, you know, they were very frugal, yes. so they were able to do that, which yes. was great for, for me and my brother. But I feel like these days, um, m most middle-class families are on dual income just to pay the mortgage. And so people don't have as much yes. time left over or energy to really connect with their kids. I, I think you hit the, the nail on the head. I think, um, yeah, because of those needs and wants, um, I, I think our kids have gotten lost and no wonder they get more disconnected. You know, similar situation to me, you know, your story, Nina, you know, mum and dad would, would take turns. You know, we, we, we'd always have one parent with the kids. But, but now it's so common for kids not to be, you know, engaged with their parents so much as it, it used to be. And I think, yeah, I think something gets lost there. You know, kids get very peer orientated. That's where they get the source of their self-esteem. And we know kids don't really have a brain anyway. You know, their frontal lobes are under renovations. <laughs> so it, it is really like the blind leading the blind. It's, it's, so <laughs> we, we need to have kids more connected with adult mentors, like you say. And I do agree. I think the boys that tend to, to do these ram raids don't have healthy pro-social males or females in their in their lives. This is in my experience in pediatrics is that a lot of parents also they mm. don't understand they don't realize how much children can see stuff. So they don't some people might think, oh, you know, oh, my partner and I, um, we are having some troubles with our relationship. We're going through a divorce, but, you know, we don't say anything in front of the children. Uh, meanwhile, their mm. child is, you know, there because they've got chronic abdominal pain or constipation, which as pediatricians we know is a functional mm. illness, usually as a result of some other sort of anxiety or stressor. So, mm. you know, a lot of parents, I think, need to realize that mm. actually children have empathetic brains. Like they just see everything is just you know dry sponges and i feel like um we really underestimate how yes. much of an impact parents have on kids you're quite right we have we have so much influence on them 
they see and hear everything. It's crazy. It's crazy. Even when my wife and I are just whispering something in the corner and we think that our kids are out of earshot, you know, they'll come back the next day and say, hey, you know, you guys were talking about this thing. We're like, what? You heard that? As a um, child and adolescent psychiatrist, what would be your biggest um, piece of advice for parents or people who are going to be parents? How do we build resilient kids? Yes. So I think resilience comes after you start establishing really deep connection with your kids. And it sounds very strange to say this because it should be natural, but I get the sense that in our digital world, it becomes harder for parents to actually connect authentically with their kids, you know, because we're also distracted by our phones, social media. We, So I think um, returning to basic connections. So I guess what I mean is things like having dinner together at the dinner table. Don't have any technology at the dinner table. Anything that puts your relationship or your connection at risk because it's distracting, I think you should try and cut out as much as you can. Because my personal belief is that children learn to be resilient through partly, you know, it's temperament, partly it's context. But I think... They get a lot from their parents too. Do you think, so this is um, controversial like said, opinion. parents have this really strong Controversial influence. opinion. Do you mm. think children need yeah. to have some amount of adversity to actually build resilience? Because I think resilience comes from being able to, you know, survive and thrive yeah. despite adversity. Because uh, I think yeah. about, is that, are we I being do. too soft on children yes. right now? Because I feel like when I was a kid, you know, my parents, I was like, I, I would be like less than 10 years old and I would just like run off. You mm. know, my parents would, we go camping on a family trip yeah. and we'd park up and I'll just run away. Yes. <laughs> and my parents would be like, okay. And then I'd come back and I'd have a friend, you yes. know, like I, we had really good structures <laughs> of like what is safe and what's not safe. So like, you know, my parents yes. knew that I would always be safe, even though I was off somewhere yeah. else. You know, I spent a lot of my childhood childhood, biking around the neighborhood with my friends. Mm. And I just don't really see kids doing that anymore. I think you're right. I think we, we do need some adversity in our lives, but I, I get the sense also that, you, you know, you, you had connection with your, yeah. either one of yeah. your parents. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I had a, I, I'm um, very lucky. I had a very I, good, strong you connection. Know, I, I can't even remember the psychologist's name now. I should know this, but was it Bowlby? You, you probably know more about this than me being a pediatrician, but you know, um, Bowlby talked about attachment, right? And you know, what's the first task that kids need to move through in order to, uh, to, to, to get attached. It's like, you need to feel a sense of trust that your stable attachment figure is going to be there for you. They're going to see you. They're going to hear you. They understand you. They're there for you. And then you can start exploring, you know, your circle of security expands. So I think, when you have attachment, it's powerful because you can teach your kids resilience as well because you your kids will have a chance to e- explore because their circle of security is is a bit broader than what it might be otherwise. That's right, because the more and, secure um, you are in you a relationship... You have a secure base to return yeah. to. Oh, you, the more yeah. secure you are in a relationship, whether it's with your parent or a significant yes. other or a friend, the more relaxed you feel about things, the more willing you are to you know, explore things outside that relationship. I, I think so, yes. Um, and at the same time, uh, when you experience adversity... You know, you, you have a stable figure that can help you navigate through that adversity. I think yeah. you're very right. I think kids do need yeah, that. I think parents do mm. need to realize that being present is so important, but it's just hard in these economic times for parents to both be present and also put food on the table. And I think that's a real shame.
It's a real shame mm. on our society. Anyway, yeah. we have um, time for one last question. So, um, yes. Devin, uh, which restaurant is your favourite restaurant of all time? Oh, my gosh. Uh, holy moly, that's a hard one. Uh, ooh. Okay, so in Tauranga, Dumpling Delight is... Uh, <laughs> in Tauranga. Uh, it's this pokey Asian... In Tauranga, yes. Great noodles, good dumplings. Uh, in Auckland, I can't think. Mm. No, dumpling, <laughs> dumpling delight is still my favorite. In Tauranga, Tauranga is going to have better dumplings in Auckland. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen I, the I people in Tauranga? I do enjoy I would say it's Tauranga's best kept secret. I see. I see. Um, Dumpling Delight. So if you're in Tauranga, go check them out, I reckon. Will do, will do. Yeah, big fan of dumplings. Had dumplings for lunch today even. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on Revolving Door Syndrome. I think it's very insightful to hear about your experiences in the youth justice and um, forensic psychiatry units. Oh, thanks so much, Nina, for having me. Uh, and I hope I didn't make too much of a dick of myself. <laughs> Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titi to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap.